Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. For the last week or two, I've had a particular notion in mind, and it seems to just be running around in my head. I'm thinking about it a lot. I've drawn a lot of comfort from it, and so I'm going to take a pause from looking at King David and the sermon series that we're doing right now on the heroes of the Bible. And I'm going to focus on this phrase that is stuck in my head. He abideth faithful. That phrase comes from 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13. Starting in verse 12, it says, If we suffer, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. But then it gives us this comforting thought. If we believe not, yet He abideth faithful, He cannot deny Himself. Now, so much of the religious world, whether Christian or otherwise, kind of centers itself around man's behavior. Has man done enough to make himself right with God? And we know that that's problematic. We're going to look at some reasons for that today. But it's interesting to me that it says that He abideth faithful. Right? If you believe not, here's some deficiency found in you. You're not exercising faith to the degree that you ought to, or maybe at all. We know the Lord at one point said to His disciples, how is it that you have no faith? These were regenerate men. They had the spiritual capacity of faith. And what Christ meant by that is something along the lines of, well, I've given you faith, but there is literally nothing in your behavior in this moment that gives any indication that you have faith. How is it that you have no faith? I can't see your faith is really what He's saying. He's talking about faith in action there. So if there's some deficiency, if we believe not... Yet he abideth faithful. Now, it's not if you believe not, then you will do something to fix that problem, right? You will eventually believe enough to overcome this deficiency in faith that you had at one moment when you were believing not. It's not that. And what this tells us is that the Lord, in terms of your eternal standing before him, is not looking at it on the basis of whether or not you are exercising faith or you're being constant in that. Now, exercising faith and being constant in it is something that we are exhorted to do, and it's immensely profitable to your life. It's essential for discipleship. It's essential for spiritual growth and a host of other things. But it is not the thing whereby you're going to be regarded as accepted before God because, you see, He's looking at something that He has done. He abideth faithful. In other words, yes, there's a deficiency here in the instance where you are not believing. But what deficiency may be found in what Christ has done? You see that? Yes, you are imperfect and you've got a lot of flaws. But I'm looking over here at Christ who is perfect and who has no flaws. This is an enormously comforting truth, provided God's people will enter into it properly. I say properly because it's possible to improperly embrace this truth. And what I mean by that is to say, well, he's not looking at my faith. He's looking at Christ. Therefore, 
I don't really have to live by faith. I don't really have to act the way the Bible tells me to act because he's looking at Christ the whole time. Well, that's not true. It's true that he's looking at Christ for your eternal standing. That, by the way, that's what's meant by the imputation of Christ's righteousness. It means that when God's looking at you, he's looking at the perfectness of Christ that's on your behalf. You see what I'm saying? But that doesn't mean that living by faith is not enormously important in our lives. Now, I want to look at an example of God abiding faithful, and it's in the life of Abraham. I want to look at Genesis chapter 15, and I want to just kind of quickly skim over some events of Abraham's life that we're all familiar with. Genesis chapter 15, and about the first six verses, it says, After these things the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. He had no son here, so he's kind of got a, you might say, an adopted uh, servant that's, that would kind of inherit his property, or, uh, you know, he's, the, he's just got a steward of his house. He has no uh, natural lineage, so to speak. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. Now that's a promise of God right there. God is giving him a promise. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Now this is a pretty remarkable promise, if you consider Abram and his age and, and uh, all these sorts of things. He's got no son. It, he's in a state of life where you would think, this is not really going to happen for me. By natural observation, this is a promise that... Uh, it, you would be apt to think is not going to happen. But it's coming from God, is it not? And there's no want of power for God to be able to deliver on this. And then the next verse gives this remarkable testimony of Abram's faith. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. So as incredible as this thing might be, it seems as though in the moment of this promise, when God is telling him this incredible thing, this incredible promise... Abram says, you know what, I believe that. I believe that. This verse is used elsewhere in the Bible uh, as a reference to, you know, Abraham's, or of course, Abram is Abraham, right? Uh, Abraham's faith, right? Here's an evidence of it. It's often misused as, well, see, this is the moment where Abram sort of became a child of God. He, this is when he believed and that was when he exercised faith, and then he became saved, right? That's how it's said in common parlance. This is when Abram got saved. He believed the Lord, and it was counted to him under righteousness. Is that true? It's not true. And do we know why? This is really important, because this is a really big text in the Bible, and lots of people use it in that way. And I'm going to quickly show you why that's not true. If you turn back, well, I'm not going to follow that rabbit trail. Let me just give you this. This will be your homework assignment. 
You go back to chapter 12, the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, and you're going to find that Abraham went out as he was told by God. And the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11 says he did it by faith. You see what I'm saying? If Abraham was obeying God by faith three chapters earlier, he was a man who had faith. That means he was born of the Spirit of God. That means he had the indwelling Holy Spirit. That means he was already in a state of eternal salvation. And therefore, whatever's happening in chapter 15 here is not the moment of uh, Abraham's regeneration or the moment he got saved in, in common parlance. That's a common error. But it's clear from the testimony of the Bible that Abraham was already born of the Spirit of God, already, already a man of faith three chapters earlier. Got that? So that's important to note. But we see, nevertheless, a testimony of his belief. He's believing God at this moment, even though God is telling him something that, from a natural perspective, would be kind of unbelievable, right? Now, how does that go? Let's look at chapter 16. Well, we get one chapter later. One chapter later. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children, and she had an handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said unto him, Behold now, the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. Now is that idea... Coming from his wife, is that consistent with the promise that God gave him in the previous chapter? I mean, is there any indication in what um, he was told by God that this is the uh, kind of means whereby this is going to come to pass? That is, this is totally inconsistent with the promise that he was given. And, and it, he's praised for believing this promise in the previous chapter. But one chapter later... Some time later, Sarai is saying, yeah, this, we pretty much need to bring another woman into the equation, right? And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. And he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. And Sarai said unto Abram, My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid unto thy bosom, and when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between me and thee. But Abram said unto Sarai, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do to her as it pleaseth thee. And when Sarai dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. We had a moment in one chapter where God gives an incredible promise. And in the next chapter, you see really Sarai and Abram saying, well, we'll kind of try to make this happen on our own. It's kind of the notion here, right? Sarai is um, displeased with God's timing in the matter. Uh, and she's trying to take matters into her own hands, right? This is uh, a, what I've been commonly referring to as the seems right doctrine. It seems like if this is going to happen, 
I'm going to have to make it happen by some uh, other means than what was promised. I have a promise of God, but I'm going to bring it to pass by doing something that's contrary to what God would have me do. That's the same thing that Saul does much later that we looked at before, right? Samuel's not here. We need to give a burnt offering. I guess I'll just get up and do the burnt offering. God said to completely destroy the Amalekites, but, uh, you know, once we started looking at them, we decided, well, I don't kill the king and keep all their best stuff, right? Seems right. And this is Sarah now, Sarai, living by the seems right doctrine a little bit. And it, it's, it causes problems. It causes problems in her relationship with Abram even before the child comes into the picture. It's already created lots of resentment uh, and uh, friction within the relationship of that household between Sarai and, and Hagar and Abram. It's an ugly situation. Turn over a little bit further. We start to see something that happens as a result of this to chapter 21. So we've already, just in what we've seen thus far, we've seen belief followed by unbelief, right? Abram was praised for believing, and in the next chapter, they're living in a way that is not consistent with that belief. He's now exhibiting unbelief. Chapter 21, And the Lord visited Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. You see that in play right there? He believed God at first, and then they kind of went off this other path. It's created all kinds of problems. They believe not, and yet God abideth faithful. Even though they messed this thing up and were staggering in unbelief for a time, created a huge problem, yet the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. That's the promise of God was given, and now here it is coming to pass, because he abideth faithful. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. That strikes me as an indication that God did not tell him or lead him to believe that this was going to happen immediately. You see what I'm saying? It's at a set time that God had spoken to him. That's pretty interesting because you might say, well, he, he was very nonspecific about when this might come to pass. And so they became impatient and the longer they waited, they thought it wasn't going to come to pass. But this kind of indicates that God had kind of given him an idea when it was going to come to pass. And yet they were still impatient, even though they knew the time was not yet here. At any rate, we see God being faithful even when they weren't. And Abram called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him, Isaac. And Abram circumcised his son Isaac, being eight days old, as God had commanded him. And Abram was an hundred years old when his son Isaac was born unto him. Well, it is a promise of God. But on some level, I think on some carnal level, if you're talking about a man that's that old, you can maybe understand why in their faithlessness, they might say, well, we need to get the timetable on this moved up a little bit, right? This just doesn't seem possible. There's a certain age beyond which this doesn't seem like it's going to be possible. But that is to discount the promise of God in the matter 
and to discount the capability of God in delivering on His promise. Skip down a little bit to to verse 9. Here's more of the fruit of that kind of bad behavior and faithlessness. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which she had borne unto Abraham, mocking. That's Ishmael, by the way. Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. Well, now Sarah's like, I don't want any part of this situation. She's evidently still mad at, at Abraham over this matter. And it's caused all kinds of problems, although she's got, uh, she's got plenty of blame in the matter as well. They're both in the wrong here. Uh, but now she's just, I don't want any part of this. Now that, now that I've seen the promise of God come true, I mean, in one sense... You might think that Sarah would look at this and say, this makes this mistake that I made even more bitter. Right? Because now God has proven Himself faithful. It makes me look doubly foolish now that God has actually delivered on His promise. God has been faithful when I wasn't. It's like a monument to my faithlessness, right? That's ever here. There's this bondwoman. She's been with my husband. He's got a child by her. Always there. Every day you get up, there they are. There's the bondwoman, there's the kid. Every day you cannot get away from it. It's like every morning you get up, you see those people who say, yep, I've been faithless to God. It's as though God is rubbing my nose in my own faithlessness here because He's faithful and I'm not. So you can kind of understand, I'm not saying it was right-minded of her to treat her this way or to think this way, but maybe you can understand something about what her attitude would be in this situation. Have you ever had anything in your life that erected an enormous monument to your folly? I can think of a few things in my own life. I won't share them here. Maybe I'll share them in a private conversation or in a sidebar. But I've built some monuments to my own folly in my life. And if given the opportunity, I'm sure I would try to tear them down and hide them. And I think that's kind of how Sarah feels here. Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son and with Isaac. And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. Abram's all mixed up in this, right? He's got sons involved. Now you've got your wife telling you to cast out this bondwoman who you've got a son with. I mean, this is a very painful situation here, and it was grievous to, to Abraham. It's true that he abideth faithful even when we're faithless, but that doesn't mean that our faithlessness does not bring all sorts of miserable consequences into our lives. And you're seeing them right here in in this example. And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman in all that Sarah hath said unto thee. Hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. You see, God had a purpose in this son Isaac. And in the promise that he gave. This situation with Hagar 
And Ishmael is something that Sarah and Abraham introduced into the situation through their faithlessness. God's purpose was in Isaac, and in Isaac shall thy seed be called, which is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And also of the son of the bondwoman will I make a nation, because he is thy seed. He's saying, I'm not going to completely turn my back on the, the bondwoman and Ishmael. I'm going to make a nation out of him as well. However, and Abram, Abraham rose up early in the morning and took bread and a bottle of water and gave it unto Hagar, putting it on her shoulder and the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. That is just a gut-wrenching story in the Bible. If you really... You know, there's a way that you can float over the Bible narrative and just say, well, that's what happened in the Bible. But you don't like kind of pause and put yourself in that moment and pretend that you're either Abraham or one of the characters in this story, the son even. And think about this. Is, look at what's taking place here. They're, he's setting, he's sending them out. You're out. It's an amazing story. You'll find if you continue reading, here's your second homework assignment. Go ahead and read some more in chapter 21 and you're going to find that uh, there's promises made to Hagar with regard to Ishmael, and, and um, you know, they're not just going to die in the wilderness. It says in verse 20 that God was with the lad. But this story is incredibly gut-wrenching to me. It speaks to the, the power of uh, God's providence and His promises relative to our own faithlessness. Now, what's interesting about this is that if you look over in Galatians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul actually refers to this story. And I want to look at what he says here, because this story serves a purpose in the Bible. Beyond just the narrative that I gave you, which was God gave a promise, Abram believed it, then he kind of didn't believe it, and then he suffered lots of consequences for not believing it. And at the end of it, he's created a mess, and the bondwoman gets sent out, and that's kind of where it lands in terms of the narrative we looked at today. That's one level of this story. It's about God being faithful and man not being faithful or not believing what God has promised him. But there's another level to this story that the Apostle Paul gets into. And it's found in Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 21. I'm going to start in verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he was, who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. That's the situation we just described. One was just a fleshly arrangement that Sarah and Abraham kind of agreed to and involved Hagar. Uh, they went about it in a naturalistic way to sort of make this happen, if you will, within the confines of the things that were at their disposal. That's how they brought this to pass. But Isaac was by promise. It's referring again to the fact that God promised them this. So I guess one of the points I'm trying to make here is that had God's promise could not be altered in this by their error. 
God's promise was going to come to pass. I, I think that's part of what was so bitter to Sarah when she realized it had come to pass. Verse 24, which things are an allegory? For these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Hagar. These things are an allegory. Now, what I want to be clear about on this is he's not saying this is just an allegorical, fictitious story that teaches a lesson. That is not what he means by saying this is an allegory. He's saying that this account allegorically represents the relationship that a child of God should have to the notion of grace and law. So <clears throat> that's what he means by it. Don't think that this is saying, and some people, uh, liberal people, will come in and say, well, uh, the Bible says it's, it, of itself that it's an allegory. Why do people believe these Old Testament stories? That is not what's being meant by that, right? It's just saying there's a parallel in this, in that story, with the notion of grace and law and the relationship of that to the child of God. And he's using these two arrangements to represent grace and the law. The one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. So he's saying, look, this whole situation with Hagar represents the covenant of law. That covenant of law is something along the lines of this, just to summarize it. Keep the law without any imperfections and you'll have a righteous standing before God. Now, not only is that bondage, as it is mentioned here, it's also a fool's errand, right? You cannot do it. So if you're setting out to build your own righteousness on the basis of I'll just keep the law perfectly, which you see people in the Bible speaking about, that's a fool's errand. You cannot do it. With men this is impossible, right? So rich young ruler was a good example, someone who took that angle. But it's a form of bondage as well, particularly for those of us who are children of God who understand something about grace and the fact that he abideth faithful and cannot deny himself. <clears throat> for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answereth to Jerusalem which now is and is in bondage with her children. That's talking about people who are under the notion of law as a savior. Keep the law, you'll go to heaven. That kind of thing. That's the bondage, right? <clears throat> but um, 26, but Jerusalem which is above is free, which is the mother of us all. I'm speaking of all God's children there. For it is written, Rejoice thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry that thou travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now, we brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. You see, in this allegory, law is that which puts you into bondage, is a terrible arrangement that creates all sorts of problems, just like the situation with Hagar did. Whereas the promise of God, which delivers what it says it's going to deliver, that is grace. And that's what we are to be oriented around. 
Now we brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. In common religious notions, the idea of being saved by grace in the broader religious world, you hear a lot of Christians say, well, we're saved by grace. If you drill into that, you'll find they mix a lot of law in with what they call grace. But if you take the purity of what Jesus Christ did is all I need, is all that anyone needs to be righteous before God, and set that up against most of the religious notions of the world which have some manner of law involved in your eternal salvation, you're going to find that the law camp greatly persecutes the idea of grace camp. They'll call you antinomians. They'll call you, you don't really uh, believe you ought to live right. There's all sorts of persecutions that come out of this. Uh, And it was true in that time. It's true um, in our day as well. Verse 30, Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. Now, the bondwoman and her son is law. Cast out the law. What does that mean? Well, is he just saying the law has no purpose whatsoever anymore? Well, Paul said the law is good if you use it lawfully, right? Uh, I've tried to use this metaphor a bunch of times. I don't think I've ever really been happy with it. But uh, I think of the law in that respect as being like the guardrails on the interstate, right? The, the Bible says you, that the law is good if you use it lawfully. Well, the guardrails are good if you use them properly, which is that you never come in contact with them. You see what I'm saying? You know it's there. It tells you where the road is, where you kind of where you ought to be driving. But if you come in contact with the guardrail, you've messed up. There's been a mistake made, Right? In the same way that says the law is not for a righteous man, well, the guardrail is not for a good driver. You ever thought about that? You're not going to hit one. If you're driving well, you're keeping it between the lane, you know, between the lines, keeping it on the road. A righteous driver is not going to hit the guardrail. But the moment you weave off the path and you're headed over into the ditch, you're no longer driving a righteous path, so to speak. You're now in unrighteousness, and that's where the law comes into play and says, wait a minute. Now you're violating the way you ought to be. <clears throat> this is the way I think about the notion of um, law and its relationship to a righteous man. It's not that it doesn't exist. It's that if you're living as you ought, if you're living by faith, following the inclinations of the Spirit, you should never be coming in contact with the law in the same way that if you're driving properly, you should never come in contact with the guardrails, right? So law does have some purpose if you use it lawfully. But what this is speaking of is casting out law as your Savior. You see that? It's saying keeping the law is going to save me. That is the notion you have to cast out. Right? You have to cast it out. That's the bondwoman, and there's a bondage in it. <clears throat> cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. What he's really saying is there's literally nothing, there's no mixing between 
the grace of God in eternal salvation. Jesus Christ got the job done. It's all what He did. You're saved by His imputed righteousness and perfection and nothing else. You can't mix that with law at all because law is all about you got to do a bunch of stuff. So there's no do, all done by Christ, or you got to do it all. And you cannot mix the two. It's evident that you can't mix them, but it's enough of a religious problem that Paul takes time to draw this out very explicitly and says, you've got, if, you, if you're a gospel believer, if you believe in the gospel of the grace of Christ, you've got to cast out these notions, legalistic notions of a bunch of stuff you've got to do to get eternally saved. To the extent that you embrace the grace of Christ, you lose all notion that you can do anything to become righteous before God. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. We are children of grace, not children of the law. You see that? That's the central importance of grace. And it's really the the fundamental tension that exists between uh, proper religion, the Christian faith properly understood, and really every other religious system in the world, which tends to be meritorious and you got to do a bunch of stuff. It's a, it's a central point um, in his mind. Look over here. Uh, when we, when we, uh, if you look at Romans chapter 10, turn back a little bit, you'll find, um, you'll find reference to something very similar. I started this sermon talking about he abideth faithful. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. That's the idea that's been on my mind. Christ can't deny himself. He's done the perfect work, even in the midst of your faithlessness. And Paul says something very similar in Romans chapter 10. I'm going to start in verse 1, and I really want to hit verse 4. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for God, for Israel, is that they might be saved. He's talking about the conversion of people, fellow Israelites, gospel conversion of people. He's not of the notion that something he's going to do is going to get more people into heaven, more Israelites into heaven. He's talking about people he knows that have a spiritual inclination that might be converted to the truth, much as he was converted to the truth. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. In other words, they're ignorant. There's things they need to learn. They have a zeal of God, but they need to learn something here. And if we don't learn that we've got to cast out the law and embrace grace then we've got something to learn too. This is the exact same thing that's necessary. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness, and what is God's righteousness? God's righteousness is Jesus Christ is our righteousness. He's perfect. We have His imputed righteousness. We stand perfect before God. That's God's righteousness, and that's what we hear about in the gospel. Jesus Christ was perfect. He puts your sins away. He gives you His righteousness so that when God looks at you, He's looking at the perfections of Christ. That's what it means to be in Christ. If you don't know those things, then you are ignorant of God's righteousness, because that's what God's righteousness is towards His people, and going about to establish their own righteousness. See, that's the law side of it. Now I got, okay, what's your checklist? You go to the different denominations who are brokering in law, they've all got their own list. Someone's got six things, some of them have four, some of them have three. You got to constantly keep it up to date. That is going about to establish their own righteousness, right? We're not accepting that Jesus Christ is our righteousness. See that? We just don't accept it. Instead, we're going to establish our own righteousness. 
And we're going to make people stand up to that. It's an ignorance. The uh, Bible speaks of ignorance, and it doesn't, it doesn't always have a hostile attitude. Some people just genuinely don't know what they don't know. There's people who reject this because they don't like it. Now, that's true, too. That's a different form of ignorance, but I think there's an ignorance that comes to just people who've never heard anything. I mean, in many churches, if you sat there and listened to their doctrine, and that's all you ever heard all your life, how would you ever know anything different? If someone didn't step you through Galatians chapter 4 and explain to you that we're supposed to cast out the bondwoman, which is the law, you might just be ignorant in that you've never heard anything like that. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. That means once you've heard that Christ is your righteousness, you just submit to that. You just say, I accept that. By the way, The Bible calls that good news. That is good news. If you understand something about yourself, you're going to realize how good that news is because you can't fix the problem. Just accepting that Christ is our righteousness. And then it makes this statement, which kind of summarizes this. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. You see that point? Christ is, once you understand what Christ did, you've accepted the perfection of Christ and His imputed righteousness. That is the end of the law for righteousness. You should never look at the law ever again and say, well, based on how I measured up on the law, I'm now righteous. He says it's the end of that. If you really understand what Christ has done, you realize it's not about that at all. It's the end of it. That's precisely the same point. That Paul made in Galatians chapter 4. The point in this, to me, is that the grace of God abideth faithful in the way, in a way that your adherence to the law never can be. You cannot adhere to the law's demands. And that's why it's a bondage. It's never going to happen if you're constantly thinking about I'm trying to establish my own righteousness. I came up with a list. I'm going to quit drinking. I'm going to quit running around, I'm going to quit doing all the horrible things, I'm going to quit cussing. Whatever your list is, I'm going to do these things. Well, first of all, you'll probably find it very hard. You'll probably be modifying your own list from time to time, letting yourself slide. But the problem is the Bible says once you accept the law, you've got to accept all of it. You can't just play this game of pick and choose. You can't, you can't even go about establishing a righteousness of your own. That's based on your novel notion of what righteousness is. Your nature is evil. Your heart is deceitful above all things. How is it going to generate a righteousness? Can you bring forth a clean thing out of an unclean thing? This is why we need the grace of God. The grace of God, the work of Christ that got our salvation done, is all we need. It's perfect, unassailable, delivers all of its objects unto glory. No imperfection can be found in it. And so the idea of law for righteousness sake is totally ridiculous. That's because Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for those who believe. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. 
Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.